Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 132 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. On today's show, I have a conversation with Dr. R.E.T. Greenleaf, an assistant professor at Seattle University. We talk about a program called Veterans Vision Fast and how to use Native American ceremonial healing rituals to help veterans reintegrate into their community. Uh, they're primarily based on American Indians of the Great Plains. The healing practice that they did, uh, the Red Passage ceremony that they conducted, in which returning warriors would be, would be met outside the village by the elders. Uh, it was understood that the warriors had experienced traumas, uh, experienced things in war that would affect them deeply, that would affect them uh, psychologically, spiritually, uh, and that these consequences couldn't just be left to the warrior to figure out on their own. There was the understanding that both the warrior and the community could be uh, potentially harmed if the, the warriors were just simply allowed to come back and seamlessly uh, integrate back into village life. And so there was ceremony conducted to, to mark this, this transition called a vision fast, vision quest. There's different, different terms. So the, the veterans vision fast does a lot to, to act out each one of those steps. And there is something, there's something transformative here in, uh, in this process. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Um, I, I've got a really interesting guest today uh, because our discussion uh, among many of the last episodes or, or some of the episodes in the past have been about how to help veterans transition, not just with PTSD and TBI and those issues, uh, but sort of in a more holistic manner. And uh, my guest today is definitely talking about doing more than just the standard treatments for veterans. Uh, so I'd like to welcome Ari Greenleaf to the show. Ari, welcome. 
Thank you so much. I'm uh, I'm very happy to be here and uh, to to chat with you about oh maybe some uh, outside the mainstream approaches that veterans are are finding very helpful. Yeah, I really appreciated um, you and I connected. You just had an uh, you and some colleagues had an article uh, published recently. Um, in, uh, in, in one of the journals that I subscribe to talking about rituals and how veterans will transition better with some of those rituals. Definitely want to get into that. But before I do that, I want to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Very good. Well, I'm a uh, associate professor of counseling at Seattle University. I've been there since year six. I was uh, a couple years at the University of Arkansas as well. And well, before that, I received a master's, earned a master's in, uh, in counseling at Clemson and worked uh, in, uh, in some mental health counseling, worked with veterans. Um, I, am, I am a veteran of uh, the United States Marine Corps. Uh, and so I've always, as a therapist, had a, I guess, a soft spot um, for veterans and the issues that often arise when they transition back. And I, uh, well, I guess to jump to how all that led to my, my research uh, with, uh, with nature uh, and looking at these uh, unconventional uh, forms of therapy, I, following the death of my father, uh, left a huge hole in, in my life and really in my heart. And I, he had always... Uh, told stories about climbing Long's Peak. It's a 14,000-foot mountain in Rocky Mountain National Park. And he would say, you know, no one can go from sea level to the summit in the same day. You have to acclimate. It's a really tough climb and all these things. And he climbed it as a young man um, and had many stories to share. Well, years later, a year, less than a year after he died, a friend of mine who was, who was a mountain climber, uh, was force recon in, in, in the Marines as a, as a medic. He told me that he was going to be going out to Colorado and he was going to climb Long's Peak. And I said, well, golly, can I cut a con? I, I would love to give it a shot. I've never climbed a mountain before. So I did a lot of training and did my best to get my, my body ready. At the same time, you don't know how you're going to do at, at altitude. And I, we set off for the trailhead at about midnight, got there and started, started hiking up at about 1.30 in the morning. And uh, I kept waiting for that, that big hit to come where I would lose my legs and, and, uh, and just uh, get altitude sickness or something. But it never came. And I had, I had energy the whole time. And, uh, and I remember I was just aware in a uh, primordial sense, aware of the elements. I'd never been in the mountains before like that. And just the rawness, the, the, the wind, the biting of the wind, and um, looking at the stars, I'd never seen so many stars. And when the sun rose, it hit the, uh, the diamond face of Long's Peak, and it turned into this beautiful uh, orange alpenglow, and I, and I was just awestruck. Um, I was in a place where I, I never been before. Um, and, but when you're, when you're climbing mountain, uh, if any listeners have experience, um, you know, you're really just kind of living in the moment. 
you're not really thinking all that much about how you feel. You, you may be aware that you're feeling kind of tired or that that wind is sure cold or boy, these boots, I should have broken them in first, but overall you're just kind of in it and you're in the experience. Um, and uh, scholars call this, uh, she sent me high is a famous researcher writer. He calls this flow and you're, you're experiencing something that challenges you and pushes you and, and expects something out of you um, that's on the cusp of being too much, on the cusp of causing um, maybe imminent failure. Um, but it doesn't quite come. You're pushed to, to, in a way. And when you're in that flow state, you're not really aware of your emotions or you're not thinking about your past. You're not thinking about your future. You know, you're you're living in a in a very simple way, in that sense, psychologically. And so I, I eventually, long story short, I made it to the summit, scrambled up the home stretch, and I remember I I stood up there on this the flat summit. It's always surprising how big the summit of Long's Peak is. I mean, you could you could have a ultimate frisbee game up, up there. And I, I stood there and all of a sudden a flood of emotion came over me and, uh, I didn't want to cry in, in front of my, in front of my friend who's a real tough guy and great guy, great heart, but you know, but I couldn't help it. The, the emotions and just taking it all in. And I, I realized that this is the first time I felt really connected to what I had lost. Uh, and it, the loss of my father, but it was a loss of other things and different traumas that uh, you know, we all kind of rack up in life if we live long enough. And I, I realized that the mountain had brought healing. It was, it was a catalyst for healing. Um, and I, uh, I was struck by how powerful uh, the benefits were uh, in, in that moment, of course, but then after that as well, and into weeks and months, even years later. And so as when I was a doc student at the University of Iowa, I'm thinking about what I want my research to be and what, what, what am I really passionate about? And I realized that I was very passionate about looking at, uh, at how nature can be incorporated into therapy so that others, uh, we can we can tap this tremendous resource that we have literally out our doors. Um, and so I've, uh, I've spent now the last few years um, looking at that, of course, doing my research and my and, and writing and um, and talking to people and, and trying to figure out, of course, the, the, the why and and the how, I guess, and then uh, and then figuring practically, what do we do with this information? You know, how does the average person um, take advantage, I, I guess, of, of of nature in the positive sense of, of the term? How how can we engage with nature, develop a relationship with nature? Uh, because we're pretty divorced from it, most of us are. No, that's that's absolutely true. But uh, I recognize, as you say, the benefit. And we hear these things of veterans walking off the war um, and walking off the war being, a, um, you know, I've heard of uh, veterans paddleboarding from Texas to to D.C., um, uh, cross-country bike rides uh, like you um, uh, in between and after uh, my deployments. Um, I'm here in Colorado Springs, so I've been up 
Pikes Peak both ways, mm-hmm. um, the, the, mm-hmm. the back way and the front way. Um, mm-hmm. It definitely wasn't easy, but you're right. There is this, um, you got to pay attention to what you're doing, especially once you get above, um, above the tree line. Um, and, and so it's, it's almost like forced mindfulness, right? You're, you're forced mm-hmm. to be aware. Um, but also there's mm-hmm. an element of, of you become physically worn out. And we know that when we're physically worn out, our body just doesn't have the ability to experience these extreme emotions. So we can look at these emotions, um, uh, more clearly and more cleanly. Um, and, and so this, this is something I think a lot of veterans have intuitively done. Maybe they will avoid therapy necessarily and just say, well, all I got to do is, you know, hike, bike, run, ruck, whatever it is. Uh, and then you also mentioned this state of flow and, and you having been in the Marine Corps, um, pushed to the edge probably of some of your, um, the capacity of your abilities and, and one of Cheek sent me highs, um, reasons or, 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 um, causes for flow. Uh, veterans found that in the military, right? When they were in the military, there were a lot of flow moments and they knew what it was like, even though, though they didn't know the name of it. Um, and they sort of, um, in some ways discover flow in nature, um, intuitively. And so I can see how these things sort of interact, but you're looking at bringing therapy and therapeutic concepts deliberately into what veterans are intuitively finding in nature and, and these physical events. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, there's tremendous opportunities as well. Veterans are in many sense, uh, they're figuring this all out on their own. Uh, we, we don't have a lot of infrastructure already in place uh, for, for veterans to plug themselves into in terms of, uh, rafting trips, like you mentioned, or care farming in this country, uh, and and other examples. It, it's generally these are small, barely sustainable uh, organizations that are holding on by their fingernails, and it's very difficult for them to get the funding that they need. They, uh, of course, apply for for grants and. Uh, and do the best that they can, and and oftentimes they they close down, and uh, and that's unfortunate, and that's what I've focused my research on. It's unfortunate because they 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 seem to they seem to work. Uh, veterans are, are you know they're, they're voting with their feet, and uh, they're signing up for all these experiences in droves. And in many cases, these are huge time commitments and financial commitments, and yet they're still they're still doing it. Uh, the The issue, though, is many of these organizations and, and these different kinds of, uh, of therapies, as we we'll call them, they uh, they don't have research behind them, or there's very the research is scant, or it, it is primarily anecdotal. I have, I have quotes to share with you, you know, rant provider. Here's a quote. And unfortunately, that that doesn't uh, that doesn't muster um, the evidence that's needed if, if an organization is going to receive a half a million dollar grant. And so I've I guess uh, I decided to get into this to partly one I'm fascinated by it and I've experienced it personally. And I believe in it, but that is is to see if yeah, can we provide the evidence necessary to change. The how mental health care is uh, is conducted 
in this country um, for veterans for, for everyone and to uh, provide that evidence so that we can uh, we can create viable um, and plentiful opportunities for veterans to get involved in in all these different kinds uh, of ways uh, outside of traditional um, talk therapy or psychotropic medications which have their place and have their place uh, and and so that's what uh, that's what we've been doing um, we've been uh, building that evidence base you know, and this is something that, and it came out of the article that I'd mentioned before. And, and for those listening in the articles, effects of a rite of passage ceremony on veterans well-being. Um, we've talked before on the show about the, the need for this, um, uh, the ceremonial, uh, sort of transition. I've had Sebastian Younger mm-hmm. on the show. He's definitely mm-hmm. talked about that in his book, Tribe. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I was surprised to see in, in the article or perhaps it was some of the um, additional material that there's not a lot of research done on these, these ceremonial transitions for veterans. Um, you know, mm-hmm. it, veterans will go to sweat lodges. They will go to these. Um, uh, we had Dr. Ed Tick on the show where he said he'd take, he had taken a veteran, a Native American veteran back to Vietnam to complete a, um, ritual that he hadn't completed before. And so, like mm-hmm. you said, we hear that these things work and veterans know mm-hmm. that these things work and, the state of where we're at right now, like you said, we have to prove that things things work. Um, mm-hmm. But I was surprised to find that there that these, specifically the rite of passage and and the ritual mm-hmm. ceremonial aspects of transition, that that's not been researched before. No, there's very little research uh, on them. I when I was first approached by a friend of mine, veteran, uh, who had faced his own demons uh, following, I believe, three deployments. Uh, to both Iraq and, and Afghanistan, uh, he, I, I met him before he went on a, a vision fast, before experiencing this rite of passage. And uh, he, first time I, I, I met him, he was giving a talk, and I, <laughs> the rawness, uh, the emotions that poured out of him, the stories that he shared, we were all just captivated. And you could tell that... Uh, you could tell that this person was facing down demons and was still in the middle of that fight, um, but was doing his best to to still make a positive impact on, on others and to be there and taking up leadership roles. Well, he uh, maybe a year went by or nine months, something like that went by before I talked with him again. I got a text from him saying, "Can we chat?" So um, I started talking with him and. He shared with me that he had gone on this vision fast, and I, I had no real context for that. <laughs> I, that was not really part of my uh, my background in terms of uh, the literature views that I've done or my reading or my research, but I was intrigued. And, uh, it, and he talked about, since he had gotten back, all of the positive changes, and that he was curious if I would research it and, and to see if can, is there uh, is there uh, evidence uh, scientific evidence that would be supportive of what's happening here and so I, I I really just jumped at the chance I said absolutely let's see uh, what's going to this and uh, we put together a very solid study we did a mixed method study uh, that uh, was really the first of its kind, not only be focusing on, on, on the passage ceremony and a vision fast, 
uh, and, and supplying quantitative and qualitative data. But we also used a data collection app in order to do this, which was probably the first time that had ever been done too in the in the way that we uh, designed our methodology. And what allowed us, though, to get our quantitative data back and inform qualitative questions, the items that we, that we constructed, were based on the quantitative data that came back. So we were able to design a very solid study. We used a, a concurrent multiple baseline design so that we could establish a, a solid pre-treatment level of overall well-being or, or symptomology. So you have a time at point A. That was uh, two weeks before they went. And we get data at that point. And then we got data the day before they, they went to the vision fast. And so then we could compare at time point A, which is two weeks before, and time point B, the day before they go. We can look to make sure that, that, that those two data points line up. If they're already trending up, then you can't then say that, that any changes are, are due to the actual treatment. But in this case, uh, all of our participants, um, yeah, how they're doing at point A matched uh, how they're doing at point B. So then what they did is they went out on this 12-day vision fast, and um, we had the data collection app ready to go upon their return. So that time point C, which was the day after the vision fast, we collected then the quantitative data. And we... We're measuring uh, PTSD symptoms. We we're measuring depression. We were um, looking at changes in psychological, emotional, social well-being. And so then, um, just for good measure, we hit them with a, uh, a, a time point D, one month following the, the return from the vision fast. So now we have four time points of quantitative data that we can just look and see it for each individual. What were the changes? And uh, thankfully, in a sense, the time point A and time point B were steady. Uh, so now we can look to see what happens to uh, the symptoms or their or potentially improvements in well-being at time point C. And the, the results uh, were frankly, um, lack of a better word, shocking. Uh, I've been doing this a long time. I've worked with a lot of veterans, um, and I'm very familiar with all of the different kinds of therapies out there to treat um, PTSD, treat depression, treat other um, psychological disorders, so-called. And I, I know from from experience that most treatments have an effect size range point eh, 0.2 to 0.4, 0.5. If you're getting to the 0.4.5 range, you're into a, a, a very strong treatment in our field. Um, most of those are behavioral. It's like someone has a phobia, and then you introduce like some type of exposure therapy to them, some some kind. And as a result, six hours later or six days later, whatever it might be, they're no longer afraid of spiders. That would be a very strong effect size. And you can get up to the 0.7 range in those, and even 0.8. So I, I'm, I'm using this vernacular fairly loosely, but just understanding that probably most of the audience doesn't have a background in statistics. But you, you know, give the idea of how strong these uh, these changes were. Uh, our effect sizes ranged at the low end uh, at 0.72 and at the high end 0.92. So the their results indicate um, 
near miraculous uh, healing that occurred uh, in terms of PTSD symptoms, depression symptoms, improvement in psychological, emotional, and social well-being. And so we thankfully had this time point B in place just to see, all right, does it just completely fall off the wagon? Maybe this is a flash in the pan kind of a thing. And yeah, they're, they're in the state of euphoria following, but you know, they get back to the real world and it's all going to crash back down. But it was not the case. The results uh, did not change significantly. They maintained. Uh, and I, so I don't want to, I want to be cautious here. I don't want to sell this idea that this is a silver bullet. That this is all you need. This is going to be a one and done deal. And then you're going to be great. Uh, it's not. It's going to take. It would take a. It would take follow up. It would take continued work. But at the same time, when when the United States is struggling, and to the degree that it is to tr- help transition veterans back from the military, uh, anything that we can do to set them on the right path to get that healing process jump started, uh, that's uh, that's uh, what we need to be investigating, and that's what we need to try to figure out how to do a better job of. But. Uh, this uh, this study uh, was so out there <laughs> that we said we have to replicate this, so we did. So we followed it up. The, this this initial study was done with the, the inaugural Veterans Vision Fast in 2017. So we followed it up last year, the, the 2018 Veterans Vision Fast, and well, the results were even though we had more participants. And there were some additional factors that were interesting, to say the least, that may have affected some of the results. I'm not sure. I can explain more about this in a bit. But the results were still fantastic. They they still showed changes, I think, at the low end of 0.5 and the high end again up there around that 0.9 range. So this, uh, this works. This worked for now two years in a row. And when... When you stop and think about it, going maybe back to to Tribe and uh, Sebastian Younger's work, I, I think he's really on to something there. And I, I maybe it's not surprising. Maybe it's even egotistical to to be surprised because uh, American Indians, uh, for that matter, people around the world, society is going back and far back into antiquity, have used these kinds of ceremonies to help their returning warriors uh, transition back into the tribe, transition back into the, their village as a, as a, as a contributing members of society. Uh, and so I reason I say maybe egotistical is, I, well, from, from a Western medicine perspective, this may all seem a bit removed, too far removed from science or too far removed from well, pills uh, and things that are easily controlled for. But if, 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 if people are doing something for 10, 15, 30, 40, 50,000 years, and there's nothing in the anthropological record to say that any of these communities suffered from epidemics of post-war, post-combat, psychological trauma there's nothing in the oral histories there's nothing in the written histories and this is what they've been doing as a healing practice we should pay attention 
You know, you're you're absolutely right. And and again, this is uh, some discussions that uh, that we've had here on the show. But the uh, the concept of um, you know uh, the Israeli soldiers um, and having a low instance of PTSD, and, and there are a number of different studies around that. Um, uh, shared um, experiences as a majority, if not all, of the the adult individuals um, uh, in in the Israeli army um, uh, served in the military, uh, or in, yeah. in Israeli society served in the military. Um, but Doctor Tick again had mentioned that in Vietnam was the same thing. Is is the the Vietnam War veterans on the Vietnamese side do not have the instances mm-hmm. of post traumatic stress disorder that our veterans do. Um, and, mm-hmm. and again, pointed to this idea of this, um, you know, very focused, very ritualistic um, sort of uh, ceremonial observance of, of the mm-hmm. events. You've mentioned mm-hmm. a couple times about the, um, the vision fast and the 12-day vision mm-hmm. fast. I'm wondering if you could go mm-hmm. through very briefly and explain what this is, because uh, listeners are saying, well, mm-hmm. I want some of that. How do I get some of that? <laughs> sure. Well, the vision fest that we worked with um, uh, put on by School of Lost Borders, it may not be the only one available. I, I can't, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, but they are, and so that, that being said, they, it may, it may change from one vision fest to another if there's more than one out there, but probably they all contain the same nuts and bolts, the same procedures. And uh, they're, they're based on, uh, primarily based on American Indians of the Great Plains and, uh, the, the healing practice that they did, uh, the Red Passage ceremony that they conducted, uh, in which returning warriors would be, would be met outside the village by the elders. Uh, it was understood that the warriors had experienced um, traumas, uh, experienced things in, in war that would affect them deeply, uh, that what affect them psychologically, uh, spiritually, and that these these consequences uh, couldn't be left um, couldn't just be left to for the, for the worry to figure out on their own. Um, there was the understanding that both the warrior and the community could be uh, potentially harmed if. The, the warriors were just simply allowed to come back and seamlessly uh, integrate back into village life. And so there was ceremony um, conducted to, to mark this, this transition. And it's called a vision fast, vision quest. There's different, different terms. Um, and some of the components, the, the first is uh, uh, called severance. In which the in through ceremony the elders would uh, prepare a sacred place for the veteran for, for the warrior to uh, remove themselves to separate themselves to to leave behind uh, what they had gone through uh, and uh, so it was a it was a preparation. Uh, for the the threshold second um, part of this, in which the warrior would uh, spend four days, four nights uh, alone, uh, and, and typically it was that that period. It could be longer, and fasting, 
with only water and within a circle uh, where they're left to they're left to themselves they're left to their thoughts they were left with nature they oftentimes would see animals that uh, they believed would be guiding spirits uh, sent from the great spirit uh, these referred to as totems uh, and that these totems provided insight, provided uh, new ways of understanding um, themselves, the world, maybe the war. And there was ultimately then uh, healing, medicine, uh, that came from this, uh, this experience of clarity. So it was very much a spiritual, a spiritual healing. And it, of course, in our society, we don't often, we Religious people refer to spirituality and spiritual things, but the medical community doesn't really have a place for spirituality many times. Uh, but this was this was part and parcel. This was integral to the understanding of healing from war. Was this spiritual quest and finding medicine in in that realm? Uh, and so, following the 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 fasting four day period, they would return. The third component is the incorporation. And they would then share with their fellow warriors and the elders and the council of elders what discoveries they'd made, what insights they had gained. Um, they would share their totems and, and the personal meaning that these have. And they would uh, share and they would give witness as well. And the giving witnesses is integral. It's very important because this is the social cohesion this is the community that has formed. And it's through the isolating experience of being out there in, in, the, in the raw elements alone that one then is prepared to come back to community uh, and to, to integrate uh, and to find one's place in, in, the, in the larger tribe. So following that, they would return to the village. They would be brought in, the elders would lead them in, and there would be typical celebrations. There would be uh, a, a, the, the rest of the tribe would acknowledge their sacrifices, acknowledge their acknowledge on all the all that they had had to give. Acknowledge that they had uh, gone into war to protect the village. I, maybe the word is the, the rest of the village was appreciative uh, and bestowed them, bestowed upon them then greater status and the belief that they then possessed higher knowledge, higher wisdom. They experienced something that the rest of the tribe could not understand unless they had also been in war. And so they were seen as uh, possessing something that the rest of the, the rest of the village uh, didn't. And so they were steamed. Um, so the, the veterans vision pass does a lot to symbolize each one of those steps and, and to, uh, to act out each one of those steps. And, uh, and like I said earlier, there is something there's something transformative here in uh, in this process 
Yes. You know, that, uh, this idea of, you know, whether it is ceremonial, um, that last sharing and, uh, um, and mutual appreciation, you know, uh, appreciating the warrior, appreciating the community for, um, allowing it back in and then the community appreciating the warrior. You know, there's this idea of ceremonies are sort of one and done type of things, right? That they're, you know, in the military specifically is what I'm thinking of. Um, but there really is a lot of buildup, say to a promotion ceremony in, in the military is you have to prepare for that. You have to you promotion boards and, and go to particular schools or different things like that. Um, you actually have to earn that same thing with boot camp mm-hmm. or basic training. There is a ceremony mm-hmm. at the end as you were talking about. And this is something actually that one of your participants shared and, and I'll read it here. Uh, he said, we received intensive basic and advanced training on how to be a soldier or warrior, but received little training to assist us in returning to civilian life or a rite of package or a rite of passage back in a society that isn't at war. And, and, and we know that, right? I was thinking of um, mm-hmm. when I went to airborne school, you know, they pinned the mm-hmm. wings on my, my chest. And same thing when I got my senior rated wings for jump master and all these different things. These, there were all these ceremonies. And what I didn't realize is, is I was preparing for this call. It's each one of those had an ordeal in, in many ways to that, that built up to this ceremonial aspect. Um, mm-hmm. So this idea of the vision fast, it's not just, hey, veterans come in on a Saturday afternoon and we're going to perform a ceremony. The vision fast is actually a measure of an ordeal um, that then ends in a ceremony. Does that ring true? Mm-hmm. Well, I think so. I do. I, I, I think that that's what's it's missing. Uh, it's what's most obviously missing uh, in the, the transition back, uh, you know, compared to um, peoples of our past, societies of our past. And what's, what's fascinating, though, is that you mentioned the Israelis and their one percent PTSD rates, uh, and we. Best estimates, and it's a wide range. We have anywhere anywhere from the low end of maybe ten percent, and some some studies would suggest uh, as high as thirty percent rates of PTSD. And while the, even the British are somewhere around three to six percent, so uh, these numbers uh, invite, I think, uh, some critical analysis and thinking about. What are what causes PTSD? Uh, it, it, the the obvious uh, the, the obvious answer is well trauma, and it's true it, it, trauma does cause PTSD. We can't escape that, uh, and yet there seem to be powerful moderating factors uh, that, for whatever reason, are getting overlooked and. Maybe the most powerful moderating factor is society itself. And where I, I would suggest that the high rates of PTSD, depression, suicide, lives falling apart post-war is more a consequence of, uh, of our larger society than the war itself. Uh, and it, it says more about us than it does about veterans. And, and, but it also points to, I think, the right kinds of solutions, the right kinds of answers. 
Uh, and medicine, for all of its miracles and the, the advancements in technology, the, the, the positives that come from that in terms of you know, all of it, longevity and health, it is, it is a very reductionist philosophy at its base. And uh, it tries to solve things uh, efficiently as possible. And uh, there's typically costs and profits uh, uh, going on. Uh, but when we start thinking about what is actually going to help veterans, it, it, what's actually going to best support them in this transition, uh, I think we need to look at um, what are they experiencing socially upon their return? And how, how best do we reintegrate them socially into our society, which is largely alienating? It's it's a very lonely society for the most part. You know, so the recent number I saw: seventy four percent of people feel lonely on a weekly basis. Uh, nearly thirty percent of us live alone. Nearly thirty percent say that at any point in their lives they have no one they can talk to about meaningful things. And for again, all the wonders and benefits of capitalism. Our version of capitalism in this in this country is highly competitive. We don't have the same degree of social uh, safety net. Um, the, the blessings and wonders of of, uh, of being a multicultural society also at times can fracture us, and uh, we can be at war with with each other in this country. And we see that now as well um, around political and cultural issues about groups, group identities based in politics. So, uh, you know, we're a very fractured society and all that is juxtaposed, of course, with a small tribe of 50 to 100 people who understand intimately well what sacrifices you've gone through in the sense that the very survival of your family and the rest of the tribe is dependent on the warrior's success. And in Israel, as another example, where everyone, for the most part, if you're not Orthodox Jew, everyone understands the personal experience, what it means to be a veteran because of mandatory service. And a country that small, that's experienced as much combat as it, as, it, as it has, everyone's lives, everyone's families, for the most part, have been impacted. And so the separation between war and civilian society uh, in a place like Israel, this is not much of a, of a line. While in our society, it, it, it's, a, it's a chasm. You can be completely out of the loop. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if half the people in this country still think, I mean, I, we're, we're, we're in Iraq, we still, and we still have 200,000 troops on the ground. I mean, people don't know is my point. Uh, whatever percentage can't even find Iraq on the map. So I, I think it's it's that separation and and that's the, the alienating aspect of it is what uh, is the is missing and ultimately then in, is a is a powerful moderating variable. We don't have that moderating variable, and so many veterans suffer from as a result of combat or trauma of some sort, uh, short term PTSD, which has its evolutionary. Um, advantages it prepares people to deal with 
with the immediate threats, um, with the rumination, we go over and over and over again, possible solutions. Um, depression kind of takes us out of the game for a bit to, to protect us so that we don't do anything impulsive and throw ourselves further at risk. So one can make the argument that short-term PTSD is, uh, is a viable evolutionary strategy for survival. And uh, it's the long-term stuff. It's the chronic PTSD that in this country, we're doing a really bad job of avoiding. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. And again, this, this goes back to, um, and it's something ever since I talked to him on the show, Sebastian Younger says the affluence of our society is causing mm. um, this separation. A friend of mine uh, describes it as we live in boxes, right? We have a box that we live in, then we mm. have another box that we drive to the box that we work in. We leave that mm. box and we come back mm. and, and we drive in the garage, we close the garage, and how much do we know our neighbors and what have you, right? So there's this mm. idea mm. of um, increasingly isolated, even if it w- is within mm-hmm. our our own small groups. And, and, and yes, we can even curate in a sense, you know, the, the information that we receive that echoes what we believe. And so it just becomes this mm-hmm. echo chamber. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this is the thing, this, this sense of isolation, this lack of connectedness, um, then reinforces the idea that civilians don't get me and civilians mm-hmm. don't get me because I don't get civilians in, in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. it's sort of like a, a self-perpetuating cycle. And it can definitely yeah. seem like, um, and, and again, not just vision fast, but organizations like Boulder Crest Retreat or, um, you know, or these different uh, Operation Odyssey with Wounded Warrior Project that takes a veteran into nature, um, and provides some sort of, um, ceremonial aspect. I, mm-hmm. I think that, um, like you said, it definitely has promise and definitely appreciate you taking the time to, to research it and, and continue the research, as you said, is just continue to verify. If people to, wanted to find out more about the work you're doing or get in touch with you and ask, how can they get a hold of you? Well, they can, uh, can reach me, of course, through, through email. Uh, and that's my last name, Greenleaf. Yeah, the color green, like a leaf on a tree at uh, seattleu.edu, uh, seattleuniversity.edu. And I, uh, I, I love chatting with people about, about what, uh, what we found and uh, about ways that veterans can get involved. Uh, I, I, I want to say one last thing about um, care farming, which I think also holds tremendous promise. We have many care farms, so-called, in, in Europe hundreds, not thousands. I don't know how many there are in the United States, but not many. And there it's very much part of even mainstream um, healthcare. And here, of course, that's not the case at all. But um, these these are are for-profit farms. Uh, They typically don't make a lot of profit, but they're for-profit farms that allow or provide access for veterans to come. And it could be other populations of people too, where people go and they work on a farm. And these, uh, these are not as intensive as a 12-day vision fast, um, but they, they also provide community and they provide an opportunity to, to access nature, to create. And um, the founder, Chris Brown, Marine, was in wounded in Fallujah, Purple Heart recipient. Uh, came back and was dealing with, of course, the common issues of that and was uh, talking with the counselor. And the counselor 
So you should get a plant, Chris. Just grow it. Uh, he, you know, fill in more of the details of the story, but he did. He got a plant. He put the plant on his deck, and he started growing this plant. And he shared that that act of facilitating life, of creating life, if you will, or at least supporting life, uh, juxtaposed with the death, the destruction, the carnage, um, was a catalyst for his own healing. He went on then, within just a couple years after this, to, to start a farm called Growing Veterans, which is in Bellingham, Washington. And th- that farm now has seen hundreds and hundreds of veterans come through who w- come when they want, work when they want, uh, and build that community. And we did a study on that one, I guess that's two or three years ago now, which is published. And found that it, it worked tremendously to build uh, social cohesion, so a sense of social support, um, and uh, improve well-being. And I think that's really important. Going back to that point you made about feeling like others don't get you, um, there's a term for this called experiential loneliness. And this is when you can have loved ones who really care about you and ask you how you're doing and let you know that they're always going to be there for you, but you still feel really lonely. You still feel really disconnected. And there's even a qualitative study that shows that in those cases, as much effort as uh, the family or loved ones might give to try to connect with the veteran, the veteran feels like that's not helpful. It feels equally lonely because people don't understand. So, um, these types of uh, care farms or doing the rafting or going on vision fast, um, I think they all have the same, um, the same active ingredient, which is getting veterans uh, connected with other veterans who understand them and give them something uh, or a place or uh, a group to connect with. Um, so, I, uh, yeah, there's many of these types of organizations and activities, and I think what it is is, is you know, what do you like to do outside and, and where do you, where do you like to do it and uh, find your, find your niche? No, that's, uh, that's a, a great point. And, and I did see the, uh, the article on care farming. I'm going to have to have you mm-hmm. uh, and maybe your buddy back on the show to mm-hmm. talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on the show today. Eric. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you, Dwayne. I, I had a great time talking with you and, uh, and, uh, you know, I hope that uh, what we shared will be a catalyst for, for our listener out there to find some way to, to get involved in one of these, these cool uh, activities and find, uh, find their healing. Sounds good. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye, Ben. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. There are many paths to a single destination, and I've known a number of veterans who have experienced and been helped by similar programs that use Native American ceremonies to reintegrate. I talk about a couple of different episodes during my conversation with Ari, primarily episode 117 with Sebastian Younger and episodes 109 and 110 with Dr. Ed Tick. A lot of this discussion is about how challenging it is for veterans to reintegrate into society after leaving the military. It's not impossible, but it takes effort, including effort on the part of the veteran. It's not that we can't reintegrate, 
but we have to want to. Programs like the ones that Ari and I discussed on this show can help us do so. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash HST132. If you want to show your support for the work that we're doing, make sure to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. We're always looking for guests, either veterans or those who support them. You can drop me a line at info at VeteranMentalHealth.com to recommend guests, or you can go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash guest to fill out a suggestion or request. I'm happy to announce that I've released a paperback version of the first Headspace and Timing book, been available on Kindle for a couple of years, but now you can get it along with Combat Vet Don't Mean Crazy. To check them out, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While I'm a practicing therapist, I'm not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track Not Alone from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Hit subscribe on your podcast player. Until next time, remember veterans, you're not alone, ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-created mini-me's Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic tendency, embrace my ability
Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.